What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. On Monday, April 8, 2002, Emma Connell walked into a Melbourne police station to report that her mother Margaret and stepfather Paul were missing. The previous night, Emma had called the couple's children and friends after being unable to make contact with them for three days. The couple were usually very social, and her mother never went out for more than a couple of days without talking to Emma or returning her messages. But in the last three days, they had missed a number of lunch and breakfast reservations, and Emma was concerned that they hadn't answered the phone or returned her calls. Emma's four siblings all claimed to not have seen the couple for weeks or to have any knowledge of their whereabouts. After completing the missing persons report, Emma spoke to her siblings and arranged a family meeting to discuss their disappearance. To their surprise, her brother Matthew confessed he had in fact hosted the couple for dinner the previous Thursday, something he had failed to mention the previous day when they spoke. This revelation made Matthew the last person known to have seen his mother and stepfather. So what had become of the couple after dinner, and how was Matthew involved? This is Monsters. Matthew Robert Wales was born in 1968 to parents Margaret and Brian Wales in Camberwell, Melbourne. He was the youngest of five children, and while Margaret was a loving and caring mother, he had little to do with his father. Brian was a pilot and spent long hours of time away from home, leaving Margaret responsible for raising their five children and taking care of the family home. From the outside, she appeared to be living the perfect life with a generous home in a wealthy suburb and holiday homes at seaside areas and ski resorts. But Margaret was far from happy. She was lonely and unsatisfied in her marriage, and with each new trip her husband took, she felt more distant from him. In those days, it was unbecoming of a woman to leave her husband especially when he was a respected pilot whose career provided a comfortable home life for his family. So Margaret took a different approach to secure the affection and comfort she desired. During a family holiday not long after Matthew was born, Brian met and became friends with Paul King. Paul was a successful businessman who was vacationing at the same resort as the family. The pair had a lot in common and thus began a friendship which expanded to include Margaret and endured for many decades to come. It was during one of Brian's long stints away for work that Paul visited Margaret at home and their friendship transformed into something altogether more sexual. Paul reignited a spark in Margaret that she didn't know she had been missing. It was no fling and over the coming years they continued their affair even going so far as to have Paul join the family on overseas holidays. 
Unbeknownst to Brian, it was all a ploy for Margaret and Paul to be able to continue their affair without interruption. But Brian eventually caught on to their liaisons after the family nanny reported Margaret sneaking off in the night to be with Paul. Brian informed Margaret's father, who demanded that Margaret stop the relationship with Paul immediately. Margaret had been born into a wealthy and well-regarded family. Her life had been filled with privilege, and her father reminded her that it was unbecoming to their family name for such illicit relationships to be taking place. He threatened to cut Margaret out of his will if she continued to see Paul. Given her affinity for the finer things in life, Margaret wasn't about to walk away from the millions of dollars she was set to inherit for the sake of one man. She put an end to the affair, at least for a couple of years. In 1974, Margaret's father passed away and with her inheritance secure, she restarted her affair with Paul. Within days of her father's funeral, Margaret moved her husband out of the family home, and no sooner had the door closed behind him than Paul moved in, filling the vacant spot at Margaret's side. Within months, divorce proceedings were initiated, and when the paperwork was settled, Margaret was free to do as she pleased. With her father's inheritance and a wealthy lover, Margaret was more outgoing than ever spending her time at high society events and traveling extensively. But the children were caught in the middle of their parents' divorce. While their mother moved on and appeared to be living her best life, their father was depressed and resentful at the loss of his beloved wife. Whenever the children were around, Brian voiced his regret and despair at having to face life without Margaret by his side. It was clear from the outset that the older children did not approve of the relationship between Margaret and Paul. They disapproved of the way Margaret had carried out her affair with Paul, whom they had known as a family friend, and they were angry at the misery their father was forced to endure as a result. They would never forgive Paul for his role in their parents' separation, and as such, they only spent time with him when they were required to. They also believed that Paul was subservient to their mother, giving her exactly what she wanted just to keep her happy and not standing up to her sometimes unreasonable demands. While she was known for her fun-loving nature, Margaret was also considered the head of the household. Her strict rules applied not only to her children, but also to her husband. But it was an entirely different situation for Matthew. Matthew was just seven when his parents divorced, and given Brian's long trips away, he had little attachment to his father. While the older four children were enthusiastic about opportunities to spend time with Brian, Matthew preferred to stay home with his mother and Paul, and Margaret was only too happy to give him what he wanted. Paul had no children of his own, and he treated Matthew like the son he never had. Matthew looked up to Paul as his father figure, over the years, this led to Matthew growing further and further apart from his siblings and closer to Paul. Friends of the family would later recall that Margaret went so far as to give the impression that Matthew was Paul's child rather than Brian's. Paul was a successful businessman in his own right. He owned a farm on which he ran Angus cattle and was an advertising manager for Coates Patton, which was a well-regarded wool manufacturing company. He was known as a true gentleman who was considerate and respectful of both colleagues and customers. Despite having a quiet nature, he enjoyed the various social and high society events he attended with Margaret. 
While he wasn't as wealthy as Margaret, he dressed immaculately and pandered to her every need. He was present when Brian had been absent, and with Paul, life was bright and exciting, whereas life with Brian had been dull and uninteresting. Matthew was a cheeky and endearing boy, and as such, he enjoyed the lifestyle Margaret and Paul's relationship afforded him. He had a wide smile and a mischievous nature, and as the baby of the family, he was provided more leniency toward misbehavior than his older siblings. This, combined with the fact that his mother had come into a great deal of money when Matthew was young, meant that he experienced a life of affluence from a much younger age than his brothers and sisters. He loved motorbikes and animals and had plenty of each, which were kept between the family's several homes and farms. Indeed, it seemed Margaret used her money to make sure the children had everything they could ever desire when they spent time with her. She worked hard to persuade the children that she was the fun and easygoing parent. She liked to think of herself as artsy, laid back, and calm. She held painting weekends with her friends and was prone to spontaneous trips away, pulling the children out of their expensive private schools to travel to exotic destinations at the drop of a hat. In the years after the divorce, Matthew began to demonstrate some troublesome behavioral problems and Margaret took him to see a psychologist. But it wasn't just his behavior that was concerning. He was also struggling at school. He couldn't pay attention for long periods and he was diagnosed with learning difficulties. Despite attending an expensive private school with additional tutoring, his grades were far below average and he left school when he was 17 after finishing year 11. As the youngest and seemingly most fragile, Matthew was very close to his mother, and this, combined with his intellectual challenges, meant that his siblings considered him to be Margaret's favorite. They believed she pandered to his every need and want, whereas they had been raised to be independent. They would later recall some disturbing traits, which had worsened as Matthew grew older. All four of his siblings found Matthew needy and secretive. While the older two found him typically annoying from an early age, those closer in age to him initially seemed to get along okay. But after their parents' divorce, they agreed that he became well aware of his position as favorite and used it to his advantage, playing the two against each other to get what he wanted. But this wasn't what concerned them the most. They recalled separate instances of Matthew being cruel toward his supposedly beloved animals. By four, he was dissecting flies, and by eight, he was impaling eels. At age ten, he began tying mice by their tails to his motorbike and driving them around until the body of the mouse would disconnect from the tail, to his great delight. He lied easily and would gladly throw another sibling under the bus to avoid responsibility for his actions. In keeping with his position of favor, when Matthew left school, his mother arranged a job for him, but he was fired within four months, and instead he decided to study to become a hairdresser. After completing his training, he began his first job at an upmarket salon, but within the year he had moved on to another salon. Over the coming years, he changed positions frequently between various upmarket salons, seemingly unable to find success working for someone else. So when he was offered the lease of an empty salon, he jumped at the opportunity to start his own business. Matthew established a four-chair salon and took on employees. Soon, he was earning his own way, finally feeling accomplished and independent, like the older siblings who seemed to dislike him so much. 
With his newfound independence, Matthew developed a taste for partying and chasing girls much to his mother's displeasure. During this period, he was briefly engaged to marry a woman named Fleur Lauber, but he called off their three-year relationship just a week after proposing. In 1997, when Matthew was 29 years old, he met Marisa Pizarro, who had emigrated from Chile with her family as a teenager. At the time, Matthew was running his hairdressing salon, and despite Maritza being five years older and from a vastly different cultural background, Maritza had had various positions as a receptionist and typist, but when she met Matthew, she took up the role of receptionist and cleaner at his salon. But Maritza wasn't of the pedigree Margaret believed her son was worthy of, and Matthew was reluctant to introduce them to each other. He warned Maritza that his mother was a snob and only interested in money and not to expect Margaret to be kind to her. It seemed the previous few years hadn't been kind to Margaret and Matthew's relationship. Where Margaret wanted her children to have prestigious jobs and partners, Matthew wanted to do what he wanted to do, regardless of his mother's opinion. As expected, Margaret didn't hold Maritza in high esteem and neither did his siblings. They agreed that she was controlling Matthew, and they questioned whether she was just with him for the money and prestige his family name offered. But Matthew wasn't to be dissuaded, and in 1998, the couple were married. In the year 2000, they had their first child together, Dominique. As the children grew into adulthood and began careers and started their own families, Margaret used some of her significant wealth to establish trust funds for each of them. But the money wasn't given freely. While the trusts enabled the children to buy their own homes, the money was effectively lent to them by Margaret. In this way, Margaret would always have the final say on what the money was to be spent on. This had the benefit of protecting the family money in that no spouse of the children would receive a financial benefit if they were to get divorced. But it also meant that Margaret had total control over her children's requests for financial support. Despite Margaret's affluent background, her wealth and the distribution of it amongst her children remained a contentious issue throughout her life. And not only between Margaret and her children, but between the children themselves. While some agreed that she had every right to do with her money as she pleased in an effort to protect her family's wealth, others believed she used it to control and manipulate them into doing what she wanted. And then there was Matthew. As the youngest and the one who struggled to achieve his own success, he was the one with the most to gain from free access to his mother's money, and he was also the closest to her in terms of a relationship. Over the years, the older children grew resentful of his position and they believed he was receiving more than his fair share of their mother's money. They called him the favorite and they stated that Margaret gave him anything he wanted to make up for his quote-unquote inadequacies. It was clear to his siblings that Matthew relied heavily on his mother and knew how to pander to Margaret to get what he wanted. One of his brothers stated that Matthew was, quote, so lovey-lovey to her, almost to the point of being a suck. I was always of the opinion that he never really left her breast, always clinging on to her. But they also found Matthew to be manipulative. He would talk badly about his mother behind her back while being needy and lovable to her face. One minute, he would be angry that Margaret disliked Maritza, and in the next breath, be asking Mama if there was anything he could do for her. But Margaret was no fool. 
As time went on and Matthew appeared to have no plans to support himself other than to run the salon, she began to grow frustrated by his attempts to gain more funds from her. She saw through the puppy dog act and began to make moves that would see a tighter control placed over Matthew's access to her money. Her plans were delayed, however, when in the same year that Dominique was born, Paul collapsed at home and was rushed to the hospital. Upon examination, it was found that he had a heart condition and had had a serious stroke. He was sent to a rehabilitation unit for therapy to regain his mobility and independence. He was discharged to return home some months later, but instead of improving, Paul's condition progressively declined. He experienced ongoing strokes which further reduced his mobility and he began to exhibit signs of Alzheimer's. Margaret would find that Paul had left the gas on after cooking or had forgotten to take his essential medication, and he was increasingly confused by his surroundings. Over the next two years, it became obvious to Margaret that she could no longer leave Paul unsupervised, and he became fully dependent on her for his every need. The once energetic and active man was a shell of his former self, and the once cherished and pampered wife had become his nurse and caregiver. Margaret's active social life began to dwindle and her desire for adventure became constricted within the four walls of their home. She found it difficult and exhausting to care for Paul. Despite all of the money and expensive treatments, Paul's condition continued to worsen. In desperate need of a break, she admitted Paul into respite care for a few days. But when she returned to pick him up, she found him wandering the streets aimlessly, completely disoriented. By now, she had begun to despair at the thought of spending the rest of her days taking care of a man who could no longer hold a conversation with her or take her out to experience the life she had become accustomed to. And so, Margaret began to make inquiries about moving Paul into full-time care in a well-regarded facility close to their home. Four of Margaret's five children lived within three miles or five kilometers of her home, and they called and visited often. Margaret complained about having to care for Paul and they all noticed the toll of Paul's care on their mother. Despite all of their earlier angst toward the couple's relationship, they wanted their mother to be happy. In an effort to give his mother a break from being confined at home with Paul and to further his now precarious position as the favorite, Matthew invited them for dinner at his home once a month. Margaret looked forward to the occasion where she could enjoy time with her grandchild and take her mind off of the worries with Paul at home. It was around this time that Matthew and Maritza decided to sell their small home. When it sold, there was a $140,000 profit even after the mortgage was repaid to Matthew's trust fund. Matthew believed that the profit should be his to do with as he pleased, but Margaret was concerned that he wasn't intending on using it towards buying another property or investing the money for future gain. She decided to retain the profit and release it only if she was satisfied that it would be used responsibly. Meanwhile, Matthew had been diagnosed with a repetitive stress injury on one wrist, caused by his years of hairdressing. He attempted to sell or sublease his salon, but both efforts proved unsuccessful, and Matthew was forced to shut the business down. He began taking disability payments from his insurance, and the couple rented the house they had sold from the new owners. They both stayed home while they raised their young son and lived off the monthly insurance payments. 
All the while, the profit from the sale of the house was in the back of his mind. Maritza kept pressing him to get the money so they could start a boutique clothing business. Matthew wanted to keep his wife happy, so he asked his mother again for the profits to be released. Despite her initial reticence, eventually she agreed and the full amount was transferred into Matthew's name. Almost immediately, the couple signed a lease on a storefront and traveled to Hong Kong to purchase stock for the store. In late March of 2002, a property which had belonged to Margaret's father was due to go up for sale. It was expected to fetch a considerable price, and the terms of Margaret's inheritance meant that the funds would be distributed equally amongst the man's grandchildren. But Margaret wanted the funds to be entrusted solely to her and given to her children upon her death. Given that the children would be impacted by the decision, they agreed to vote on the outcome. Two siblings were in favor of Margaret receiving the proceeds of the sale, and two were against it, which left Matthew as the deciding vote. Margaret approached Matthew and reminded him of her previous generosity. Despite the decision meaning Matthew would need to request money from his mother rather than having independent access to it, he was eventually convinced to vote in her favor. With the paperwork signed, Matthew celebrated his son's second birthday and on the 4th of April 2002, he invited his mother and stepfather over for their monthly dinner for the very last time. The day started out like any other for Margaret and Paul. They spent the morning talking and making calls to family. A worker attended their home to fix a broken security latch and friends visited for lunch before Margaret was dropped off for her regular bridge class. After returning from playing bridge, Paul and Margaret shared a bottle of fine wine on their back porch with those same friends from lunch. As the afternoon turned into evening, Margaret received a call from Matthew to advise that their regular dinner plans needed to be pushed back by an hour. It was no trouble for Margaret, who was enjoying the camaraderie with her friends of many years. They were a welcome reprieve from her exhaustive role as Paul's carer. At around 6 p.m., Margaret got dressed for dinner and waved off their friends as they departed. She turned the nightlights on and drove down the darkening street in their silver Mercedes toward Matthew and Maritza's home just a few minutes' drive away. When they arrived at the home, they could smell the fresh aromas of a meal being cooked. Matthew had become a great cook in his months at home after stopping work due to his injured wrist. He invited the couple in, and they sat down for what would become their last meal. What Matthew had prepared for his mother and stepfather was far from the mouth-watering risotto that it appeared to be. He had used one extra special ingredient to really make this a meal to remember. Or not to remember, as it turned out for Margaret and Paul. Out of sight of the dining room table, he took the crushed-up blood pressure medication and the codeine tablets that he had stolen from Maritza's mother and mixed a hearty dose into each of their bowls. As they sat down together and ate like a normal family for the last time, Maritza was mostly preoccupied with Dominique. Paul couldn't string a coherent sentence together these days, so Matthew kept their wine glasses topped up as a means to pass the time while Margaret rattled on about whatever activities filled her social calendar in between complaints about Paul's care. But Matthew wasn't really paying attention. He was more interested in his mother's increasingly slurred words and lethargic appearance. When Maritza excused herself to put Dominique to bed, Margaret stifled a yawn and said, quote, We'd better go too. 
She stood up somewhat unsteadily and made for the front door, but she couldn't leave without a snide remark about the state of the home's front lawn. As they walked toward the car, Paul in front with Margaret following behind, Matthew reached for a length of pine wood he had hidden behind the hedge earlier that day. He raised the wood above his head, and with both hands, he brought it down onto his mother's neck. With no chance to react, she crumpled silently to the ground. Matthew stepped over her body and raised the length of wood again. He hit Paul across the back in much of the same way he had his mother, and the frail man fell forward, smashing his face into the paving stones. With both victims incapacitated and lying prone on the ground, Matthew reached for the stick once more and proceeded to rain down blow after blow on their heads and torsos. He didn't stop until blood began pooling around their bodies, silently edging toward his feet. He checked for signs of life and upon finding none, he sat back on his heels, looking over their broken and bruised bodies. He'd done it. He'd finally put an end to his mother's control over his life. In these moments, for the first time in his life, Matthew felt free. It wasn't until a light flicked on in the shop across the road that he turned away from Margaret and Paul's bodies and walked towards the front door to find Maritza, but Maritza had beat him to it. She walked out of the front door in horror as the outline of her in-laws lying in a heap on the pavement silhouetted in the darkness. Matthew appeared from the shadows, his eyes were ablaze with emotion and he firmly pushed Maritza back into the house. Get inside, he demanded. What happened? she questioned. I hit them. I hit them. She could see a streak of blood across Matthew's tracksuit and his hands were shaking. Maritza ran to the toilet and vomited. When she looked up to see Matthew watching her from the doorway, she screamed at him, quote, What have you done? He repeated, quote, I hit them. I had to do it. It's like, like, a relief. I had it in me. I had to. I had to do it. Maritza was beside herself as Matthew attempted to console her, but she couldn't even look at him in the eyes as he ranted about why they had to die and how good it felt to be free of them. Eventually, she asked him what he was going to do, to which Matthew replied, quote, Just stay here. Just stay here. Don't do anything. I'll fix it. She watched through the upstairs window as Matthew returned to the front yard and proceeded to drag the bodies of his mother and stepfather into a concealed spot between the brick fence at the front of the property. He threw an upturned paddling pool over their corpses and left in his mother's silver Mercedes as the front gate clunked behind him. Maritza laid curled in the fetal position in the couple's bed with the covers pulled high over her head. She was still wide awake when Matthew returned a few hours later and asked her, quote, Do you hate me for what I've done? She couldn't stop crying as she sobbed out the words, quote, What are you going to do? What are we going to do? They laid there like that together until the morning of Friday, April 5th. That morning, Maritza begged Matthew to call the police and tell them what had happened. Matthew said he would, but first he wanted a few normal days with his wife and son before he was sent to jail. Maritza told him she was going to work to take her mind off of things. When she left, Matthew rented an enclosed trailer from a local gas station and visited a hardware store to buy rope and six lengths of stainless steel chain. He stopped by a brickyard to collect concrete blocks and returned home to clean up his mess. 
He stuffed Margaret and Paul's bodies inside duvet covers and threaded the chains through the concrete blocks before wrapping them loosely around the corpses. He heaved their bodies into the back of the trailer and covered it with a tarp before rolling the trailer into his garage and closing the door. When Maritza came home from work, Matthew told her not to go into the garage and she again begged him to call the police and tell them what happened. Again, Matthew told her he would in a couple of days. The next day, Maritza went to work again while Matthew picked up some industrial concrete cleaner, a crowbar, and a load of compost. He drove with the trailer aimlessly for three hours until he found a remote area of dirt where he dug a large hole and buried Paul and Margaret's bodies. The first to notice that Margaret and Paul were missing was a neighbor who got suspicious when she noticed the curtains were drawn and nightlights were still on the morning of April 5th. Margaret was incredibly house-proud and not prone to sleeping in. With no answer at the front door, she called another neighbor who also rung the doorbell with no answer. They decided to call Maritza, whose clothing boutique was just a short walk away. Maritza claimed not to have heard from the couple recently and told the women that she would check in with Margaret's other children. Margaret's daughters had spent the weekend away at their holiday homes and as such didn't think to call their mother to talk. That was until Sunday when the youngest daughter, Emma, realized that she hadn't heard from Margaret to remind her of the breakfast arrangement they had the following day. She called her mother at home, but there was no reply. On the drive home, Emma asked her husband to stop by a payphone so she could try again. Of course, there was still no answer. When her older sister told her she hadn't been able to reach Margaret since Thursday, Emma knew something was terribly wrong. She drove straight to her mother's house, which was just five minutes away from her own. With no answer at home, she was in a state of panic and she began to call everyone she could think of that could possibly know where the couple was. All of the siblings denied any knowledge of the couple's whereabouts and friends hadn't heard from them either. She had a fleeting thought that maybe they had gone away spontaneously, but the thought was quickly dismissed. With Paul's limited mobility, the couple had become creatures of habit. They rarely broke with routine and certainly not without someone knowing about it. The next day, the siblings used a spare key to gain access to the home and they were most surprised to find that the house appeared to have been left unkempt. Margaret was usually a fastidious cleaner and yet there were wine glasses in the sink and the bed sheets were crumpled. All of the couple's personal belongings appeared to be there aside from Margaret's purse and their silver Mercedes. There was no sign that the couple had gone away for the weekend and the answering machine was filled with messages from concerned friends and family trying to get a hold of them. Emma knew the time had come to involve the police. She left her mother's home and drove straight to the closest police station at Malvern in Melbourne. The police took her concern seriously given the nature of the couple's disappearance and the fact that the sisters had already spent considerable time trying to track the couple down. Using Margaret's detailed schedule, police knew friends had visited on Thursday afternoon and when asked, the friends both recalled Margaret saying she was going for dinner at one of her daughter's houses. Given her daughters were away all weekend, that only left Maritza. Emma called Matthew to ask about dinner and it was then that he revealed that he in fact had seen them on Thursday for dinner at his house. This made Matthew the last known person to see the couple and it made the police very interested to speak with him and his wife. When Matthew arrived at his mother's house to speak with the police and his siblings, 
they could barely get a word in between Matthew's erratic outbursts of emotion and his claim that he was too overwhelmed to answer any questions. He kept crying, where's my mama, and howling when a question was directed his way. Eventually, after a couple of hours of police and his siblings trying to understand what had happened at the dinner, Matthew told them he needed to go home to be with his wife who was suffering a migraine. But his siblings and the police were unconvinced by his charade. They stayed up long into the night discussing every potential of what could have happened to Margaret and Paul, and they kept coming back to Matthew. Within days, Margaret's Mercedes was found, undamaged and locked in a bayside suburb. With this discovery, police knew they were dealing with something altogether more sinister than a missing persons case. They changed their focus from recovery to a homicide investigation, and Matthew and Marisa became their prime suspects. The next day, an officer stopped by Marisa's store to ask her what she recalled from that Thursday night. Maritza claimed that after a rather tedious meal, she had put Dominique to bed before Matthew and she had waved Paul and Margaret off at around 10 p.m. They didn't know what had happened to the couple after they left. Not long after this interview, the bodies of Margaret and Paul were found when park rangers noticed a suspicious mound of dirt beside a deserted county road outside of the city. With evidence wrapped tightly around the bodies, police were able to pull up CCTV footage from hardware stores and service stations in the area around where Matthew and Maritza lived. It was here that they finally uncovered concrete evidence that tied Matthew to the horrific murders of his mother and stepfather. Police arrested Matthew Wales on two counts of murder and he was taken back to the police station for questioning. While they were sure that Matthew had carried out the murders, they hoped to gain an understanding of what had happened that Thursday night. How did a family dinner turn into a family homicide? And how was Maritza involved? To their surprise, Matthew was much more forthcoming with information this time. In fact, over the next 190 minutes, he answered every one of their more than 1,400 questions. He described in graphic detail exactly what had occurred that night, but he spent most of the interview explaining his motive for murder. It was immediately clear that the decision to kill his mother and stepfather was no spur-of-the-moment action. Matthew was deeply resentful of Margaret's controlling nature and iron-fisted grip over his finances and decision-making. He shared detailed descriptions of instances she had belittled him and shamed him over the years. From stopping him from seeing his real father and driving a wedge between him and his siblings, to telling him he was an idiot and not capable of making decisions for himself. He hated her for hating Maritza and for not being generous with her money when she could have made his life much easier if she wasn't a cruel and dominating person. When he had questioned Margaret over whether he should side with two of his siblings in the dispute over his grandfather's inheritance, she refused to speak to him for a month. He also believed that with Margaret out of the picture, he would get his share of the inheritance and be set for life. But the ultimate slight was the indifference she showed toward Dominique, her own grandchild. She appeared disinterested in the boy and made little effort to spend time with him. For Matthew, this was unforgivable. But what about Paul? According to Matthew's siblings, the man was clearly a pushover, but he had done no wrong towards any of them. He was merely a pawn in their mother's game. But Matthew told a different story. 
Not only did the man enable Margaret to treat the children the way she did with money, but Matthew also had some rather more disturbing memories of his time with Paul. Most of these memories revolved around special alone time. From as early as Matthew could remember, his role to present himself as Paul's child enabled the man to access him alone in his room at night where the man repeatedly molested him. According to Matthew, while he already had made the plan to kill Paul and Margaret, his decision was solidified when he entered the playroom that night and saw Paul with his hand down the front of his son's pants. He recalled tearing the boy away from Paul and knowing then and there that he was going to go through with eliminating them from his life once and for all. He wouldn't allow Paul access to do to his son what he had done to Matthew throughout his childhood. In Matthew's own words, quote, My motive is clear, just utter hatred for the couple which I have had for the past eight years. When it came time to discuss Maritza, Matthew was equally as certain of his answer, quote, Maritza had nothing to do with this at all. This is me. Maritza was arrested for attempting to pervert the course of justice by making false statements to the police. Matthew pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 30 years in prison with a minimum non-parole period of 24 years. Maritza also pleaded guilty to perverting the course of justice by making a false statement to the police. She received a two-year suspended sentence. The judge noted that he believed Maritza had no part in the killing of the couple and was merely a pawn in Matthew's attempts to cover up his crime. Matthew's crimes became known as the Society Murders, given Margaret and Paul's standing in high society. Their disappearance and then murders became tabloid news and the case was broadcast across Australia. The great irony of the case was that Margaret's will left everything to her children, but they would be unable to access the funds until such time as they each turned 40 years old. It was Margaret's last chance to use her wealth to extort control over her children. Matthew was only 34 years old at the time of the murder. Like many of the stories on this channel, Matthew wanted something for nothing, and he killed his own mother and stepfather in order to try to get it. But like the other monsters on this channel, he failed. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.